You are listening to an Emmanuel Community Church podcast. For more sermons or information about the church, visit our website at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, good morning, church. Man, is anyone else grateful for that worship team? Oh, man. Yeah. While we're at it, how about the children's ministry that allows us to be in here fully focused? We're grateful for them. And the whole tech team and everybody, it's just, it's amazing to me to get a a, a behind-the-scenes look at all that goes into a moment like this that we get to share together. Worshiping the Lord, hearing from his word, it's stunning to me what God does through the gifts of his people. So I'm grateful, and it sounds like you're grateful too, and if you can hear my voice and you're one of those people, just know that we're grateful, Right? All right. Well, hey, if you don't, didn't know it, you walked into a series we're uh, doing in the book of Romans. We've been in the book of Romans for a very long time. Right now, we're in a series moving through chapters 9 through 11 called Deep Mercy. And I just want to remind you that in this section of scripture, it takes up a lot of real estate in the book of Romans, and it's the sort of scripture that can make your eyes roll back if you're not careful. Or we can fall into some deep ditches and some big questions, um, especially when you lose sight of the key principle in Romans 9 through 11 that's easy to miss, and that is God's mercy. If at any point in this conversation you lose sight of or you step out of the context that this is a conversation about his mercy, you're likely to hit a roadblock, fall into a ditch, get distracted, and get frustrated, right? So I just want to remind you there's a reason we call it deep mercy, And there's two big principles we want you to hear in this series in Romans 9 through 11. And the first is that our God is extremely merciful. That's absolutely true, even though much of our world might characterize him as vengeful and judging. I've experienced that. I've even felt that way sometimes about God, if I'm honest. Uh, And we, we sit in a world that is bent to think of him that way. But the fact is, Scripture proclaims over and over again, bluntly, directly, and without apology, is that God, no matter how he looks to you and to our world, is actually merciful. That's the lens to look at him through. And the second principle is that salvation, the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles, is intricately interwoven. And for those of you with a theological bent, you'll get a lot of, you get a sense of that in a big way in these chapters. And those of you who don't have one, you need to understand that everything uh, you know about Israel, you need to understand as it relates to uh, our salvation as Gentiles. Uh, is deeply intertwined with theirs and likewise, okay? So it's two big ideas, uh, and hopefully as you come to each of these sermons and and listen and and unpack it with us, you're getting more and more of a sense of how those two statements are true. But for today, we're gonna be in Romans 11, verses one through 10. If you wanna open your Bibles there, Romans 11, one through 10. And while you're doing that, I just wanted to show you something that this whole section made me think of. It's this game that I've seen uh, people play before. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have, where uh, you actually go around in a circle and you pour liquid into a cup, right? I see some nods, right? I think it's a big Facebook, or or, no one's on Facebook anymore, what am I saying? It's one of those online video things you see a lot of people do, right? Where uh, you go around and everybody puts a certain amount of liquid in the glass as much as they want or as little as they want, but the trouble is the first one to get any to spill loses, right? And so where the game gets really interesting is when you start getting close to the top of the glass and you start to see that tension, water tension, and the water actually, oh, I lost. But you see the water tension gets above the glass, and, and, and it's just this really tense game where who's gonna, who's gonna overflow the glass and lose the game? Have you seen this? Well, now you have. <laughs> Bazinga. 
Well, I thought of that because uh, I've, I realized this is a, a perfect image of the way a lot of us have experienced relationships in our lives, at least for me, where uh, you wonder when it is you're going to hit the end of someone's patience with you, right? I mean, and we come by it honestly, because we've heard our parents at some point reasonably say, I've about had it. Next time is it, right? And they're not wrong because, my goodness, we were terrorists as children. Am I right? Uh, not any of the kids in the room. We know you're perfect. But, uh, you know, but in a more serious, I guess, way of looking at it, though, like that, that metaphor comes to us really quickly, that reality that at some point everyone has a limit. There's only so much of me that they'll take. There's only so much of my failure that they'll take. There's only so much of my idiosyncrasies or stresses or troubles or weird, awkward habits that they'll take before there's consequence. And the real consequence that I'm kind of waiting for, if I'm honest, in a lot of relationships in my life, it's just always been this way for me, the real consequence is when they finally turn away or in some cases actually become antagonistic and reject me. Is it just me? Okay, so, you know, and different personalities have different kind of experiences of this, but I think it's a, a really good metaphor for how relationships tend to work in our world. We just kind of have a sense of there's a limit. There's a point at which we're going to overflow that cup and lose something significant, maybe the relationship altogether. And I thought of that because of our text, because in many ways, this is exactly the situation. This is exactly the perspective that Paul is speaking to when he writes to his readers Verses 1 through 10, the question they're asking is, has God given up on his people? Has he rejected his people? Right? Right at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11, that's the very first words. I ask then, did God reject his people? That's a question that I want you to feel and relate to because I think it's a question we can all relate to whether we're talking about God's behavior with his chosen people that he's promised to never abandon or reject, you know, in Israel or us as individuals. That's a question I relate to. And it's a critical question and it makes sense that they would ask it, especially when you look at where Pastor Denny took us last week in chapter 10. It's a reasonable question for Paul to speak to because back in chapter 10, uh, we saw that uh, there's a sequence of truths that, that kind of primed this question. First, we saw in 10 verse 18 that, that Israel heard the good news. They heard that salvation uh, from God came by faith alone, not by works. They heard that good news. Uh, Romans 10, 18 says, uh, didn't they hear well, and Paul says, of course they did, and he proves it. And then in Romans 10, 19, we see that they didn't just hear it, they understood the good news. Paul says in 10, 19, again, I asked, did Israel not understand? And he goes on to explain, they absolutely understood. Their, their rejection was not rooted in a lack of understanding or a lack of hearing. They heard and they understood. And then he goes on to say that Israel rejected God by rejecting Jesus. And God's, in, in 1021, we see God's stance toward Israel all along has been, uh, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. They're not confused. They're not deaf. They heard it, they understood it, and they were obstinate. That's God's relationship with Israel to this point. And so if they, Paul's readers, just like you and I grew up in a world that very truly and very really presents to them that when you hit the limit, you lose the relationship, it makes sense that he would ask this question for them. 
Well, have they hit the limit? Has God now rejected them? Does that explain why the vast majority of Israel, all of national Israel, hasn't just rejected God and Christ, but they hate us as Christians and want us dead? Like, does that explain the dumpster fire of experience we're having with Israel right now, that God has finally just thrown his hands up, they hit the limit, they overflowed, and it's done? That's what's going on in Hebrews 11.1, and I can relate heavily to that question. So Paul, right out of the gates, gives us the answer. He says, absolutely not, by no means, no, right? Hebrews 11.1 says, by no means. God has not rejected his people. What Paul's gonna demonstrate to us in Hebrews 11, one through 10 is that this right here may be true of human relationships, but it is absolutely a broken perspective when applied to God. This doesn't fit the truth and the reality of the God that we serve, the God that, we're, that we have to do with. This is not true for him. And to the, to the degree that we apply this image to our God, to that degree, it just proves we don't get him. We don't understand him. We are confused. Could I be any clearer? God has no limit to the amount of sin he can forgive. He has no limit to the amount of patience he can apply. There is no cup. There's a bottomless hole that you could continue to pour and pour and pour into, Paul's saying, by no means has he rejected his people. That is literally impossible. That's what Paul is gonna demonstrate to us as it relates to Israel, but more pointedly for you and me in the room, as it relates to you and me. By no means is he even capable of rejecting people who he has established a relationship with, with and promised that they can be forgiven and that they are. Could I be any clearer? By no means. But Paul realizes he's dealing with people just like you and me who are like, hear that and say, that's cute and all, but I still feel the tension and I still don't know if I buy it. And so he's gonna give two proofs, all right, in the text. And the first proof that he's gonna to give to his point is simply himself. Proof number one, verse 11, one, he says, he's gonna say this, that Paul's own salvation is an example of God's ongoing faithfulness to Israel in the present. Right now, he says, right in front of you, you have an example of this fact, that this is a broken perspective, that God is faithful to his promises and faithful to his people right now, to Israel. And guess what the proof is? It's me, Paul says. Ta-da! Look, right here. I'm the proof because he says, I'm the Jewiest Jew you could ever Jew the world with. I'm Jewish, right? I'm, I, am, I have all of the pedigree. Look, and he says this over and over again in his writings. Like I have all people represent Israel and I am in relationship with God. He says, I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Look at me. And, you know, the fact that he continues to write kind of proves that there's probably this guy in the room who's like, that's cute, Paul, but you're the one making the case. You don't count, right? You're one guy. Clearly, you're trying to spin my head. And he says, okay, okay, people of the book. Okay, people who, who got your questions from a broken perspective about God that you pulled from the scripture. Let me use the same scripture to show you that not just in the present can I prove that God's faithful, but I'll prove it from the past. This is nothing new. And so he goes to 11.2. He's gonna tell us that Elijah's story is an example of God's ongoing faithfulness to Israel in the past. Okay, if I'm not good enough now, let's talk about the, the scriptures you say you believe. Let's go to Isaiah. 
or uh, sorry, not Isaiah. We're gonna go to uh, Elijah. So in Romans 11, two, he says this. He says, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? I love how he says that. Don't you know? You're gonna, you're gonna hit me with the book? Let me hit you back. All right. How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. All right, and so if you don't know this story, let me just say, by the way, side note, kids in the room, I know the Old Testament can sound boring to you. I know it can seem unreachable to you, but this is one of those stories to spend some, a weekend just doing your devotions, reading this story. It's like wild. It's one of those stories that just shows you, man, there's so much there. If you have the eyes to see, if you'll do the work to get into God's word and like listen to the stories, man, he has got some really cool stories and this is one of them, all right? And so this story of Elijah, uh, it's in 1 Kings 19, right? And the context is this, Elijah's a prophet of God and he happens to be doing ministry in the northern tribes of Israel uh, at a time when Israel had hit its absolute rock bottom, right? This is the worst, most evil political situation, social situation that Israel had ever found itself in. It was when uh, uh, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel were ruling. And, and, I, uh, and, and he's called to call Israel out and call him back to repentance. There's gross immorality. There's gross idolatry, murder. It's just twisted. And by the way, if you have in your mind this idea that Israel usually was in good shape and then had these down times with evil leaders, you, you don't understand. It's extremely rare that there was even a majority of Israelites who are actually devoted to God in history. It's easy to miss that in your Old Testament, but it's extremely rare. And, and Elijah's ministering at a time when it's very obvious that the absolute majority of Israel was, wanted nothing to do with the real God, right? And Ahab and, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, Ahab and, and Jezebel were out for, for Elijah's head because Elijah had just come off of Mount Carmel where he did this showdown with their false god prophets and him, this whole fire from heaven thing. If you haven't read that story, another really cool story in the Old Testament. Um, and, you know, he has this big win, but now uh, they want his head for it. And so he's hiding in a hole in the ground, crying out to God. Because in his head, he's understanding that God had made an unconditional promise to his people Israel that they would be blessed and that there would be this great relationship. He would be their God, they would be their people. And nothing in his world is adding up to that. Everything in his world is screaming, this isn't working. God has rejected his people. He is failing to follow through. It's a dumpster fire and his life is at risk. And so he's crying out to God saying, look, what's going on? You said you were faithful, but my experience is all of the math adds up to something's not working here. What's going on? Right? Have you ever been there? Pastor Josh is up here saying this, this doesn't work, but this is exactly how it feels. You have overwhelmed God's limits and he's failing to follow through on his love for you. Your experience says, God, it's not working. Your faithfulness is questionable. Everything's a dumpster fire. You ever had a miscarriage? Experienced a divorce? the loss of a loved one, the best of your family before their time. You ever been in that visceral spot? 
where all of the math really, you're not dumb, you do the math and the math in your perspective adds up to this doesn't match the God that you say that you are. So either you have abandoned us and you're not faithful or you're incapable of following through in your promise. We're not allowed to say those things in church, are we? But I just did. You ever been there? And God's answer is, hey, look, yeah, your math adds up. You're not stupid. Your math adds up. You're totally logical, absolutely, in your limited frame of reference. With what you can see, all the numbers in here really do add up to good reason for questioning God. But the thing is, there's a whole lot more going on that you can't see. I'm bigger than that. And so God's answer reveals to him, yeah, I have had a remnant all along. Before you even got to this point of tension, I absolutely have a remnant preserved for you. So in your notes, God graciously preserved a remnant and was preparing judgment for the rebellious majority of Israel. That's what he says to Elijah. And in a broader sense, that's what he says to you and me when we question. There is something he's doing already outside of your perspective, outside of your data. There are more numbers to this equation than what you're working with. Am I making sense? And I know in apologetics sense, that's a really convenient out. And there's a lot of atheists in the backs, you know, of the conversation saying that's cute. But it's true. Your God is either infinite and bigger than you can see and up to things that you don't understand or have the capacity to wrap your head around, or he's not. And if he is, then that means that when my experience screams that something's wrong with God or his promises, I have got to come back and trust him. And that leads us to the conclusion that Paul's gonna give us. He gives us the question, he gives us the answer, and then he's gonna give us his concluding statement kind of wraps it up. He says in 11.5, so too at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace, and if by grace then, it cannot be based on works. If it were grace, it would no longer be grace. So in Elijah's case, there's this remnant that God had saved. He was working in a way that was bigger than Elijah could see, and that new data kind of changes the equation. God was absolutely being faithful. He was absolutely preserving a remnant following through. And the conclusion here is one that's gonna give us kind of a twist. It's, it's gonna give us some theological truth and some practical truth. The practical truth is this, that rather than rejecting Israel, God has graciously intervened in order to save a remnant. What was true in Elijah's time is still true today. That's what Paul's saying. That God had saved a remnant then because he's a God who does that. So in, in the past, it was the 7,000. In Paul's present, it was Paul and all of the Jewish people who were coming to faith. It was few in comparison to the majority, but there was a remnant of Jewish people coming to faith. Fun fact, I'm a quarter Jewish. My mom is half. My grandmother, who didn't know Jesus, was full Jewish. God reaches people, even beyond and past, the faithless. God is drawing people to himself, Jew and Gentile. He has a remnant. That's not a past truth only for Elijah. It's a present truth now. That's what Paul's saying. And it's still a present truth for us, even while we watch the dumpster fire going on over between Israel and Gaza. It's true. God is saving his people. The remnant. 
That's what Paul's saying. That's the practical truth. The theological truth is one that's interesting because this is precisely one of those spots where you can fall into the ditch of this conversation about election and God choosing and the fairness that we tackled back in Romans 9. And this is where it's easy to lose sight of what's going on. I want to show you something in uh, Romans 11.5 that we just read. I want you to tell me what's the key word here. See, if you're going to get hung up on chosen and the question of why God chooses one, not another, and this whole choosing thing and whether we have free will or not and all that stuff, I just want you to point, I want to point out what Paul thinks the point is here. Just listen to me read it. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen, there's that word, by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What do you think Paul's point is? That we should get lost in a ditch of theological questions on whether or not our free will, how that interacts with God's movement in our lives? You think that's his point? And we're not wrong to ask those questions, absolutely. Do that, wrestle with God. Let him touch your hip, give you the limp, and, and you'll know him better for it. But understand that to the degree that you get down into that and make this text about your questions about free will and God's sovereignty, you're missing the mercy. The mercy that will contextualize that whole conversation for you. That wherever you land on the question of election, if you've lost sight of mercy, you've missed the point. Can I say that again? Wherever you land on the conversation of election and free will, if you've lost sight of mercy, you've missed the point. If you've lost sight of grace, you've missed the point. See, God has always held some Jewish people back from outright rebellion of the majority. He's done that. You want to get into the election conversation, fine. But, but at the core of it, what he's doing is he's holding them back. And this is not a new idea that God is holding, restraining people's sin. Right? God isn't just willy-nilly saying, I pick you, I lift you up by the head, put you in the saved basket, save baskets, and the rest of you. That's not how the scripture frames it. The scripture frames it that all of us are full-headed, full-head esteem pressing away from him. Every one of us. There's not one of us that has even an ounce of merit that would cause us to be even interested in God on our own, let alone able to choose him well. And so scripture talks about him. His, his choosing a remnant isn't just willy-nilly picking. He's, he's holding all of us back and giving us an opportunity to wake up and receive him. He's restraining our sin, right? So, and he, that's what he did for Israel. He restrained an, a, an element of them and, and allowed them to come to the point where they could trust him by faith. That was true then, but it's also true now. Salvation has always involved a gracious movement of God to restrain a sinful resistance to him and to enable faith. Maybe I'm tipping my hand a little bit on where I sit when it comes to election and how that works. I believe that what God does that makes it even possible for us to be saved because we wouldn't otherwise choose him is he restrains our, our, our full head esteem running away from him and gives us a chance, gives us a window, gives us the capacity to even see him, let alone respond to him for a time. And salvation has always been rooted in the fact, the mercy of God, that he restrains us in our sin long enough that we have a chance to respond to the gospel, to hear it, to respond to it. And if we don't, there's a point where he turns us over. 
I don't know when that is for any one person, but when he stops restraining. See, we see it in Romans 1, 24, 26, 28, three times he says he turns them over to their sin. What does that mean except that up to that point he was restraining, restraining evil, restraining that bent, giving them a chance to see, to respond before they finally just were turned over. I think that's a mercy-minded perspective of what's going on. Look at Romans 3.10. As it is written, there's no one righteous, not even one. Are there exceptions to what I just said? Are there exceptions to what Paul just said? No one means no one, right? He goes on. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. There is no one who on their own, left to themselves, seeks God. No one. That anyone does has to come back to some sort of movement of God, a restraint of their full head of steam running in the opposite direction. So our salvation is not because we got it when someone else didn't. Our salvation was because in that time of restraint, we responded in faith. So am I making sense? It's debatable, I know. We can have that conversation. If you disagree with me, I still love you. Maybe, maybe we'll find out you were right. But at the core of it, understand salvation is a gift. It's a movement of God that God allows and makes possible to happen in our hearts. None of us can take credit for even our faith. That was true of Israel and it's true of us. So when our small frame of reference, to kind of summarize this section, this conclusion, when our small frame of reference tells us that God is failing, when we slide into this perspective of God, that he must have hit his limit with Israel, he must therefore be able to hit his limit with us and with people, and, you know, for those of us who are saved, you know, somehow we could fall out of it. Somehow we've, you know, God is the sort who he'll promise security, he'll promise his love and his favor, but there's a point where we run out of his favor it's a broken perspective. When our small frame of reference tells us that God is failing, what we do is we trust his track record. That's what Paul's saying. It was true in Elijah. It's true now. It's funny, the corollary between Elijah's experience and Paul's. It's really similar. And, Elijah, and Paul had Elijah's story to look to, and so do we, to prove that nothing's new here. Things can look like a dumpster fire. It can look like God has failed. It can look like we're beyond his reach. It can look like Israel or the church is just done and it's a dumpster fire. It's just not true. There are things going on. God is big enough that he's doing things beyond what we can see in, in time and in space and in history to fulfill his promise. Because he's promised at one point, some point down in the future that all of national Israel will come into repentance and will come into relationship with him by faith. That it looks nothing like that now has no bearing on whether or not that will ultimately be true. And so we trust his track record. He always has a remnant. He's always got a card in his back pocket, if I can dare to use a gambling analogy for God, I guess. But you know what I'm saying? He's always got, he's always moving. He's always ready. So Paul gives us that conclusion, and now he's gonna give us some implications. It's super typical for him in his writings. He kind of gave us the, the question, the answer, the conclusion, and now he's gonna give us some downstream implications, sort of a summary clarification of some implications of what he just said. And he's gonna start in Romans 11:7. 7. He says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. 
The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block, a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. This is some harsh language. And it's easy to think that he's saying that to you and to me because of our struggle with sin or because of our addiction or because, you know, this is what happens. You know, I know I'm saved and all, but I might just hit that limit. You know, we'll take that language and we'll take it out of context and apply it to ourselves. But this language, this harsh language is applied to the majority, the rebellious majority, not to the remnant. This is the language saying, look, if you want to push past God's restraint of your sin, if you want to push past God's, this window that God has given you to hear the gospel and repent and, and, and submit to the fact that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, not by your efforts. Or if you want to just continue to go and say, I just want to sow my wild oats and you want to press and you want to press and you want to press, fine, you're free to do that, but understand what's coming for you. Understand the, the logical, theological, just plain physical reality of what comes with somebody who's gonna just go full tilt out of God's grace beyond that moment of opportunity to come into relationship with him. Understand that it's gonna be harsh and it's gonna be bad. It's not because God's mean or it's angry. That's what justice looks like. That's what it looks like to make the world new again. If you wanna wait, make the world cancer free, you've gotta kill all the cancer or else it's not cancer free. You follow? If the world's ever gonna be sin-free, if God's ever gonna make all things new, then, and you wanna be part of that problem and just continue to be part of that problem and never submit your life to Christ by grace through faith, then yeah, there's harsh language here. But this language isn't directed at the remnant, the church, or those, that remnant of Israel who has accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior not based on their works, but based on faith. This, that language isn't for them, it's for the majority. Am I making sense? Okay, so take a deep breath, remnant. Thank you, right? Because again, we're so prone to slide into, oh, there's that harsh language, it's proof that we have, it's not, again, broken image of God. This is not an image that the remnant has of God. But back to Paul's point, what he's saying is this, that Israel's earnest pursuit of God failed. Why? Because they insisted that God's approval could be and should be earned. And this isn't new in our series. If you started with us in chapter nine, you, this, Paul just keeps beating this drum. Israel's problem in God's mind in Paul's day actually wasn't idolatry. It wasn't egregious kind of the gross sin we try not to talk about in church too much. It wasn't all the stuff that all of us people who, are, who, who have experienced addiction, you know, he's not talking about that. In fact, the rebellion of Israel that he's pointing out is actually something insidious that sneaks by us all the time. The rebellion of Israel in Romans chapter 11 isn't sleeping around. It isn't drunken orgies. It's not that stuff. The rebellion of Israel actually looks a lot like this. Okay? This insistence that can happen even in a room like this, that God's love has to be earned. 
that going to church is what makes God happy with you. That serving or going on a missions trip or wearing the correct clothing or cleaning up your language or making sure you don't get divorced even though you continue to basically hate each other for your entire lives, as long as you don't cross the line into divorce, God will stay happy with you. You follow? Rebellion that Paul is putting his finger on is a rebellion that's really close to home. And so there's an old saying in Maine that you can't get there from here. That's my best Maine. You can't get there from here, which is an absurd statement. So basically, if I understand it right, this saying in Maine originated when a bunch of locals had these obnoxious tourists coming through insisting that getting where they wanted to get should be simple, and you, plebeian, should tell me where I should go. And the Maine people would just shake their heads and say, yeah, you can't get there from here, and move on, right? It's an absurd statement because literally, physically, you can get anywhere from anywhere if you just know how, right? But it's a perfect statement for what Paul's saying here because in a spiritual sense, it's absolutely true. You cannot get into relationship with God from a starting point of earning. You can't impress him, you can't serve him, you can't honor him enough to overcome the sin problem in our life. Am I making sense? We hear in this loud and clear, okay? Listen, passionate commitment to a path doesn't make it the right path earnestness, that's the word Paul uses, the earnest pursuit of God, the earnestness doesn't matter. Just because, young folks, just because it resonates with you doesn't make it true. Especially when you have a broken perspective on life and of God. So the passionate pursuit of the wrong path in the woods will still lead you over a cliff or to hypothermic death. I've, I've, seen, I've seen those stories. I've, I've read those stories. The only way to get to relationship with God is not by way of earning, it's by way of yielding, trusting. In your addiction to pornography or alcohol or drugs and in your addiction to doing everything right so that God will love you. Either way, it's the, you can't get there from there. The way into relationship with God is simply by trusting that God loves you, has to restrain your sin and give you the opportunity to hear the gospel, believe that Jesus died for you in your place. All of your legalism, all of your hedonism, whichever or whatever, he died in your place so that simply by trusting the sacrifice that Jesus made in your place, you can be saved. Amen? Where's the remnant? Amen? Amen. So listen, Paul quotes Isaiah 29.10. Oh, I'm going to jump here. Uh, an ongoing remnant is gaining God's approval by faith even while the rest are becoming hardened in their rebellion. That's what Paul's saying. An ongoing remnant is gaining God's approval by faith while the rest are becoming hardened in their ongoing rebellion. The legalists over here are being hardened. The remnant who have heard the gospel and submitted to it are being saved. And if you're that person in the room like me as a kid who was so scared that I was the hardened one because of the addiction in my life, can I just speak to you for a second? If you're scared that you're hardened, you're probably not hardened. That you care at all about how God feels about you, that you desire at all to be at peace with God probably tells you you're still in that space where you could simply trust him right now in the promise of the gospel and today's your day. Am I making sense? 
Paul goes on, though, with the legalists, and he quotes uh, Isaiah 29.10, a passage that goes on to highlight God's disdain for Israel's legalism. The people who hear, would hear what I just said and said, say, uh-uh. You gotta know the Old Testament, you gotta know the law, you gotta follow the rules, you gotta look the part, you gotta serve and honor, serve and honor, serve and honor, serve and honor, and that is how God's favor is earned. What's interesting is if you keep reading in Isaiah 29, you'll see what God goes on to say. He says this, that these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. This is God's disdain and his frustration with the majority, not the remnant, the majority who have pressed past his grace, pressed past his restraint, and continue to insist that they can get there from here. And they should, and so should all of us. But we need to be mindful that rebellion can often look like religion. Rebellion can often look like religion. Not always. Religion's not bad. Hear me loud and clear. This is great. But rebellion can often look like this. Am I making sense? So listen, the call to us in the room is this. If you are in any way concerned, if I were to ask you, if you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? And your answer is unclear. If it's anything other than by simply because of what Christ did, if it's muddled by your works, by church attendance, by all of those things. If I were to ask you on a scale of one to 10, if you were to die right now, how sure are you that you'd be with Jesus in heaven? And you're anything other than 10, welcome here. Today's your day. Today is the day that you could come to a 10 out of 10 of certainty, not because of your works, not because of your religion, but because of Christ. And I would encourage you, if that's you in the room, at all fuzzy, to tap someone on the shoulder and ask them for help. There's a lot of people in here who are in the remnant who would love to help you. And if the person you tap doesn't know, then take them by the arm and go tap another shoulder. And keep tapping until you find someone who can look you in the eye with conviction and tell you about their experience of the fact that this is not the God we serve. That salvation is a free gift for anyone, the legalist or the hedonist, and today is the day of salvation for you. Amen? All right. And if you're clear and no one taps you on the shoulder, let me just give you two quick applications. And that's this, that today I want you to remind someone that God is faithful and does not abandon his people. God is faithful, no matter how it looks, no matter what they're feeling, no matter what they're going through, God is faithful. He's up to something, and he doesn't abandon his people. And second, I want you to remind someone today that God's love is a gift that cannot be earned. It's a gift that cannot be earned. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> it's so wild that we can call you Father. We're so grateful for your love for us so grateful that we can know for sure that we're in relationship with you and walk and live in that space. For the, for the brothers and sisters in the room today, Father, who are tense right now, unsure about where they stand with you, would you give them the courage to tap a shoulder? And for all of us, would you help us to be people who will remind ourselves by reminding others about the truth of your limitless love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.